0: Hi, this is Jennifer Jones, your host for Let's Think About It, a podcast where we're exploring life as a neurohospitalist. We work entirely with acute hospital-based neurological problems, stroke being much of it. It's hard to imagine what it used to look like when a patient had a stroke and there weren't docs set up specifically for their care. With the advent of thrombolytics, there were new pressures on neurologists, ER docs and others to deliver treatment quickly and at the door. We're those people. What a neurohospitalist learns and sees in this experience is unique, so let's get to it. In this episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Alex Snyder, the second founding member of Mission Neurology here in Western North Carolina. We talk about his recruitment here almost 20 years ago from academic neurology, which he didn't think he'd ever want to leave. I talked to him about what the neurology community looked like then and what hospital coverage was like. I think in listening to this, you'll hear the dedication and commitment it took to lay a strong foundation for this program.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Schneider, and it's a pleasure to be here today. I am a neurohospitalist at Mission Hospital here in Asheville, and I am the chief of neuroscience here, as well as the medical director for the Comprehensive Stroke Program. And I trained at the University of Washington, both my internal medicine um, internship and then, and then my neurology residency, and then I did a stroke fellowship at the University of Cincinnati. I came here after my uh, fellowship and then a couple of years on faculty at the University of Cincinnati. That's where I did my stroke fellowship. I, after having trained at the University of Washington in Seattle, I had a very uh, good training program. It was very heavily hospital-based, and uh, we had great hospitals and uh, a lot of autonomy, and I certainly had some great mentors there that i think inspired me to pursue a stroke fellowship and then had a great stroke fellowship at the university of cincinnati and and uh, dr joe broderick and um, others there um, who were just fantastic mentors and i really saw myself <clears throat> pursuing an academic career and started out that that way um, you know, with clinical research and uh, the idea of grant writing and papers and um, so forth. Um, but I found myself after a couple of years feeling a little disillusioned about the joy of that for me.
0: And, and then is that what your, your attendings were mostly? Is that what their lives look like,
1: like a lot of grant writing, research and well, training residents? and. It was. And um, I really think my my career was laid Laid out before me just great opportunity to dive right into established studies and to be connected with world class stroke leaders who were. knew many other of the stroke leaders in, in the in the national stroke community, and so I, I would have had incredible opportunities to pursue that and to further that but I just found myself. Wanting something else, yeah. And, uh, but I had I had planned an academic career while I was in my residency, and thought that that would be the best. And I happened to come to Asheville um, on on a uh, opportunity to give a stroke talk, um, and this would have been during my fellowship. So I brought my wife Lynn down, and we had a wonderful weekend. We, we uh, presented data on um, a study that had been ongoing that was out of Cincinnati, the uh, IMS study, Interventional Management of Stroke Study, which was um, acute stroke treatment with a reduced dose IV TPA followed by endovascular intraarterial TPA. So I came and presented some of the data here. I met Jonas Goldstein, one of our interventional radiologists here in um, and, and some of the others, of course Robin Jones or is she the one who brought work. you
0: here robin i don 't I think it was
1: the radiology team, the interventional radiology team in goldstein who who sort of spearheaded the opportunity to do the talk and in fact they didn't actually invite me they, they didn't know who I was. They invited uh, Dr. Tom Tomsick, if I remember correctly, who was one of the uh, national leaders in in um, interventional neuroradiology. He was at the University of Cincinnati. And so he offered the opportunity for me to come and present the data and, and uh, the experience of IMS. And so I was like, sure, I'll come do that. And you know, you, they pay you a little bit. They put you up for the weekend and uh, had a, just a lovely weekend of it. And my wife, of course, said, you know, if you ever wanted to, to you know, take a job somewhere else, Asheville seems like a great place to live and i know oh, honey i know what my career is going to look like i'm going to be an academic neurologist i've got it all planned out and um, <laughs> lo and behold within a couple years we're looking at possibly looking for a job and you know not not wanting to stay in an academic career and uh we got a literally got a flyer in the mail from Asheville, you know and it advertised to be a neurohospitalist, which you just didn't hear of back then. And they even had had on the uh, postcard, you know, seven days on seven days off. (laughs) uh,
0: Truth in advertising. not Exactly.
1: And my wife, she, she, to this day never lets me stand that down because (laughs) I've worked more than seven days on and seven days off, especially early on getting started and trying to build the program and, um, but yeah, I got that flyer in the mail, and within, I'd say, 6-12 months, we, we were moving to Asheville.
0: So you you didn't initially, and, and I cut you off when you were talking about Robin Jones. So Robin Jones you met, and she's a force of nature. I think I have one question here mm-hmm. about you know whether she was, a, uh, if, if, if this program could be what it is without her.
1: No, it, it couldn't, and uh, she had been part of Mission Hospital for a number of years, and. She's just filled with a rich history of, of how the program started, uh, the Neurohospitalist Program, but she preceded that, and um, so stroke was, was a big focus of, of what we developed with the Neurohospitalist Program, but there had been a rich history of stroke care that preceded the Neurohospitalist Program, and um, the landscape for neurologists in the community was changing, and um, but robin was she was gregarious she was uh, very um, energetic about providing stroke care she was very patient-centric um, she really cared about the hospital and the patients here in the region and it, it meant a lot to me as well i wanted to be part of something that was bigger than myself uh, as an individual but i will say that um, the hospital at the time wasn't necessarily looking for a program, they were were looking for a warm body or two to take care of the hospital-based neurologic patient. And when I came to interview, um, you know, it was abundantly clear that's what they were looking for. But I told them, look, there's some really great opportunities here for stroke and and, uh, a neurohospitalist, a new neurohospitalist program in general, and I want to be able to do some things. And uh, so we discussed that a little bit. And very quickly, um, they, they bought into the, the idea of, well, let's, you know, let's give this guy a chance, see what he can do. And so with Robin's partnership and Reed Taylor, who's an incredible physician and patient advocate um, and, and advocate for the stroke program in general, um, we really were able to start something that in a lot of ways, we didn't necessarily know what it would look like at the end of the day, but we knew what we were doing was a good thing for the community.
0: And so, and you had, it sounds like the ear of the administration who would allow you to grow a program and get the support that you needed. That's right. And then, um, what about when you were looking, so you said, you know, a couple of years later, you're realizing you wanted to leave academic medicine and you'd been here and you liked it. But what about other opportunities? Were there other neurohospitalist jobs that were, that you were looking at and what? Right.
1: I did. I looked at a, a couple of uh, other opportunities, um, and they were not full-on narrow hospitalist opportunities per se. There was a, there wasn't a lot of that out there at the time, but the field was really starting to evolve to where hospitals needed a physician who would take care of patients in the hospital, and some some practices had different practices had different models. And so I looked at some different places and to just give you an example, I won't say w- which uh, community it was, but it was out, out, outside of North Carolina. And um, they were looking for something similar, a physician to come in and take care of patients in the hospital. And when I presented to them this idea that, you know, we need to do things differently than historically has been done. Stroke is a neurologic emergency. We need to build this program. The landscape is really shifting in in stroke care. Um, they, they didn't want to do that and <laughs> they didn't offer me a job They were, they were not interested in oh. me because they were concerned about but they were concerned about um, changing their sort of way of life and, and what it would really would mean to them and their lifestyle
0: again it wasn't a thing that people talked about I mean I was in training around the same time and I just assumed it would be you know some pro- as a general neurologist some pro- some outpatient mostly in a little bit of hospital coverage, and I didn't really know of a model of just like a a, a community hospital to be mostly hospital-based. And so it, when I came here, it was, um, let's see, there were just a few different practices. The one I joined with Mike Young and Duff Raritan, and then there was Asheville Neurology, and then you guys, and everybody was sort of covering call.
1: Asheville Neurology had just sort of opened, really, but they were... Uh, opened because of Mountain Neuro, which is what it was called, which was a combined practice of neurology and neurosurgery. And um, they were going through some practice changes with separation between the two specialties. And um, that's how Asheville Neurology opened with with a couple of the doctors from that group. Reed Taylor was part of that group. He came into the hospital and then I came along. And so there was some community-based neurology. and, And prior to all of this, um, I would say that the community was progressive, though, because the neurology team here, the the group here, they would take turns spend a week in the hospital, oh, okay. and, and then they would have their outpatient practice, you know, on, on the other weeks. And so um, they were they were trying to do that, but but I don't think anyone was that interested in being stroke doctors, except Reed Taylor. And so he came into the hospital. I, I came along six months or so later, and um, That was our primary, our only responsibility was hospital-based neurologic care. Neither of us had office-based care work. And um, the community-based neurologists would help us on the weekends because we couldn't cover um, all the time. And um, so we would, Reed and I would do um, typically one night a week and one weekend out of four, we would cover and then we would sort of split up the rest of the days during the week and then the outpatient doctors would take turns covering uh, the other, some of the other nights plus the, the weekends. But as we built some of the things that we were doing, and I'd love to hear Reed's uh, impression of this, but I remember he used to say that you know we've got to get our hands involved in a lot of things neurologic, so that that if the hospital ever wanted to separate us out from from this, they wanted to end the program it would be difficult to do, that there would be a lot of pain involved because we were doing a little bit of, you know, stroke care. We were doing, we were doing palliative care. We were doing, uh, helping with ICH, which is part of stroke care, but that was not historically done by neurologists, um, and, and and some other things. And so, um, he got into DBS, deep brain stimulation, um, you know, some of the epilepsy coverage in the hospital we were doing if it came to where, you know, the hospital decided, well, we don't want to hire you know, hospitalists anymore, it would be difficult to replace what we were getting our hands into. And that was a little bit of our attitude in, in a joking way of, yeah. of what we were doing.
0: So, so it looked very different. I, I can remember when I started, like we would go up to a room and read EEGs. You'd read any EEG that you ordered yourself, right? That's right. We would, and you were, we were
1: reading it. our own EEGs and, uh, all my EEG reading training was, was residency-based, and so as, you, as someone who's done a neurophysiology fellowship, you know that that's marginal at best.
0: Well, and then we didn't have ICU reading then either, and Correct. all that has happened, but I'm just thinking, okay, so try and remember back to like early days, what would a typical day schedule look like?
1: It's it's a bit hard to remember, but uh, it was... I mean, the, first
0: of all, where did we even get the patient list? I can't remember that. Where did well, we find out where our patients were? We did have an
1: electronic were? record, so we did have that. We but, printed but, it, but it was so it was something that we kept control of. We would put our patients on a on a met on a list on the computer, and uh, it is it's very hard to remember. I was thinking about some of this in preparation, and uh, but we didn't. Our daily notes weren't in the computer, so we would dictate, and we would use telephones to dictate, and um, it would get transcribed in a day or so, and then it would go in as as a consult or an H and P, and then the daily note was a handwritten note. So we had the classic. I remember
0: this, yeah. You know,
1: for all you young doctors out there who don't remember this, but there were these long sort of three ring binders that opened over the top and. You'd thumb through, you know, the lab reports and, and whatnot, and you'd write a soap scribbled note. note in there, a soap note style, and uh, you know it was it was very it was definitely old school, but it was in transition, so there was right. the, the dictated part and and the handwritten part.
0: Right. Okay. And then so then you had your list, so you'd come in and you'd see patients who you both admitted and consulted on. Mm-hmm. So was it pretty busy consult service when you first started? Like, were you guys already busy, or were there days where you might not get
1: any? No, we always had had referrals, and it was busy. We would respond to the ER, and I think you know, of course, the external calls were less, but we had outside calls that would that would find their way to us, and we'd give telephone advice, or including telephone TPA. You know, uh, oh, that person's a candidate. Go ahead and treat. Yeah. You know? We, w- we wouldn't be able to look at their films. We'd have to rely on their reading. Um, it, it was, it felt busy at the time, but in retrospect, it's nothing like it is today. But it's, like I said, it seemed busy. We also had a nurse practitioner who was, who had neurologic experience prior to joining us. And uh, she was here when I got here. I think she and Reed started together, Cindy I Benton. So. Yeah. And um, she was uh, just an incredible clinician and still is. She's not working with us currently. I think she's more in primary care in the region, but um, I don't know that we could have survived without her.
0: So you came in and she was already here, but now we work a lot with our advanced practitioners. So was that hard for you coming from an academic center? You didn't have advanced practitioners there, right? you had residents and we had
1: fellows right but we didn't have advanced practice providers that i recall and maybe it was starting to get introduced um, but i don't recall any it wasn't that hard i mean there definitely was a you know learning to let go a little bit there was i, I would say that was a little bit hard but I mean, Cindy really was a superstar yeah she and we've was, always was... had
0: really good ones i mean for the most part we've had to just have people trained up mm-hmm. to be completely almost, you know, able to just be independent.
1: It is. It's yeah. worth the investment. As a, as a physician clinician, it's worth investing in your advanced practice providers yeah. to, to really get them up to speed of, of what the needs are. And, All
0: right. And then the other thing I was remembering that's quite different now is our Saint, our sojourns to St. Joe's. Yeah. We used have two emergency rooms, that's right. right?
1: That's right. So this for, for those that don't know, the um, hospital... Mission Hospital really was two hospitals until about nineteen ninety six or ninety seven when St. Joseph's Hospital and Mission Memorial Hospital merged into one, and they're literally across the street from one another. And so um, by the time I got here in two thousand and four, you know the it was well established that we were one single hospital with one single medical staff, but we still staffed two emergency departments. There were wards. There were there was ICUs. Uh, there there was um, There was radiology, wars, there was radiology uh, at the Saint Joseph's campus, um, and you know, of course it slowly uh, has changed to where everything's now just on the M- Mission Memorial campus or Mission campus now. Um, but yeah, back then it was you covered both, and there would occasionally be a code stroke over there. You had to go over there for code strokes. I remember one of the early uh, VPs that I worked with, it was, it was budget season. And so he, he had emailed me or called me and asked, I think he emailed me and asked, um, Hey, do you guys have any needs to submit for, for the budget for the following year? I emailed him back and said, yes, I need uh, two Vespas for our <laughs> acute stroke care. And um, he was like, okay, um, yeah, we, let's see if we can get that. What, what, what is that? and so I had to explain to him that we're, it was just the brand name of a moped so yeah. that we could go back and forth between St. Joe's campus yeah. and Mission campus, and of course we didn't get our Vespas. But <laughs> or I did a gondola. Try to, or a gondola would have been nice, but I was I was being reasonable. Just yeah. a, a couple of Vespas, you know, we'd, we'd look good and we would... I know, love that he thought about it. Yeah. yeah, he considered it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Your all right, what do you so you've never practiced an outpatient? You've never had a clinic experience per se.
1: I I did when I was in academics, of course, I had you know two or three half days a week that I did uh, outpatient work as well as the hospital based work.
0: And so, do you miss anything about outpatient?
1: Uh, A little bit, but not so much that I would want to do that or go back to that, you know, four or five days a week. Yeah, And, and of course, I've never had the full outpatient experience where that's all I'm doing, uh, you know, eight to 10, half days a week. Um, so I don't think I could ever go back and do that, but could I do, you know, some part of that? I could. And, um, as, as much as that I like the acute neurologic care and some of these things, I don't mind some of the other things. And I, and I do miss the, the relationship that you get over time with, with the outpatient population. And, um, you can't do everything and so it's something that i've let go over the
0: years yeah that's one of the things i think we've talked about that um being in the hospital your relationship is more with your colleagues almost that's the relationship that you develop over time more than with the patients because having done both in the outpatient it's a little bit more siloed you know you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have that same team feeling at least in my experience
1: True. And we're very team oriented here on the inpatient side, but I think there are a lot of practices, hospitalist practices uh, that, that are a little bit more different than what we do. I think that they may be a true seven on seven off where they don't really see each other. And so they may not develop some of the team, esprit de corps that we've developed over yeah. the years because I, I really feel like we've done things a little differently here to create You know, the team, as mentioned, the program, um, the shared experience to me, what it all boils down to is, is trying to create something that is, that can last that people don't tend to burn out of as much versus certain other models. I think we've really been able to do that. You know, we've survived COVID for, well, we survived, you know, acquisition by a major hospital uh, corporation uh, three years, almost three years ago now. And, uh, um, and then we've survived COVID. And so there were, there were opportunities for our team to sort of seek happiness and work elsewhere. Yeah. We all really stuck around. Well, and I
0: think that's a lot of the cohesiveness that you and Reed have, have really Done, but did you have that as an an idea that you were attending to, or was that just incidental?
1: It, no, it was it was a real uh, it was intentional, but I, it wasn't something that I thought about when I got here. Yeah. Know, when I first got here, it was just me and Reed uh, and Cindy, and um, in a lot of ways, it was easy as we got busier, it was easy to manage our time and our schedule because it was just the three of us. But at the same time, as we got busier and it became more onerous, we had to bring more people on. It became obvious very quickly to me that if you're going to create something that really works long term, you're going to have to build it in a way that, that you have that, that positive shared experience, that uh, where we care for each other in, in some manner, that, that we, we care about the work we do. We care about our external face to our colleagues and the, the community. Um, and we, we have a, just a solid identity as to who we are as mission neurology. And early on, it was hard to do because, um, you know, the work was still hard and we, we couldn't go from the, the three practitioners to the 12 that we have today. There was a solid decade plus of growing pains that we had to go through. And I, I remember working just an enormous amount and. We tell my wife that if we ever moved, I would not want to come in as a as a um, as a lead neurologist. I would want to come in as like the third, fourth, or fifth guy because I can't do it. This this was a once in a lifetime. You just uh, put it in to build
0: something. Yeah. And 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 so the, the cohesiveness was something you thought about as we grew to keep it. And I think some of that, what would you attribute it? too, I mean, part of it is your leadership for sure. And just, you know, your attitude, which sort of sets the tone, I think, you know, is helpful just to say like, we're here to help the other services, not to try to block consults. And, you know, just even with neurosurgery, things that can come up sometimes, like who should admit we're here, we try to help out. That's a good attitude, I think. But then some of our meeting days and that, what else do you think you've done to help our group have this?
1: cohesiveness other things Well, i think i think some of it i'll just say the why it was always important to me i think it's just my background in general i, I think i probably got some of that from my dad over, over the years um just listening to him and talking to him about about team and, and and those sorts of things um and also i would attribute it to my experience in my fellowship and a couple of years as a, a, an assistant professor at the university of cincinnati and so Dr. Joe Broderick and and the team that he had formed at the University of Cincinnati had had that sort of family feel to it that where we were all working together and uh, for, for a common good and a goal not not just for ourselves uh, I really carried here where I and I had certainly plenty of experience seeing physicians you know blocking where they they don't want to admit that they're, they're very uh, hands-off and I didn't want to be that doctor because at the end of the day, the only person that really suffers in that scenario is the patient. Yeah. And to me, that was just terrible that, that we were, we would that people would treat clinicians would treat patients as a hot potato. And, you know, you want to do what's best and what's appropriate in terms of getting them the right care and the right attending and the right consultant and that sort of sort of thing. But um, part of the attitude and, and uh, getting hired here, was um, the relationship that we had with neurosurgery. And um, I remember they had a breakfast meeting with the surgeons uh, that I had. It it seems a little disparaging about what I'm gonna say, but this is all I remember was (laughs) they didn't ask me who I was or where I came from or, or much personal about me, very little small talk. The only thing they really asked me was, will you take care of ICH, intracerebral hemorrhage? Because that was a bone of contention here in the community as to who should admit ICH. And ICH historically in training would be a very neurosurgical patient, a lot of them would get operated on, but the field was shifting to where it was a very medically managed disease. And I trained in a model that was neurology admitted ICH, neurosurgery admitted subarachnoid hemorrhage. And um, I, I had that attitude and actually my training at the University of Washington was shaped my attitude today of, of, of not treating patients like hot potatoes, that if you're asked to see them, you've gotta take the the less interesting cases in order for referral, to, to get the interesting referrals. You gotta so see a lot of everything. You gotta yeah. see a lot of everything. Yeah. You've gotta be available. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of our attitudes has always been um, as I would tell the team, you know, we're in the customer service business. We have a customer base that it's not just includes patients and their families, but it's our physician colleagues, that if we provide them a good service, they're going to turn to us uh, uh, to help them. and And you want that. You want those referrals at yeah. the end of the day. And at the end of the day, I think it's just good for patients. So back to the surgeons, my attitude was, if we can offload their their medical caseload, their neurologic medical caseload, they can spend more time in the OR, and that allows them to practice at the limit of their training and licensure, and it allows us to be at the bedside, to talk to the families, and to guide them through difficult times, and so, in my opinion, everybody wins that way. Yeah, that's pretty wise, I would say.
0: Are there any diagnoses that you miss? Are that you don't see much in the inpatient? I mean, I'd say, for example, managing MS.
1: Yeah, I, um, I'd i say 10 years ago, maybe I missed it, but I don't know that I miss it anymore because I, I don't feel as confident yeah. managing MS in terms of the medications. I, w- I would have to do some, some extra coursework or reading to yeah. get up to speed on that, and I think I could enjoy it, but a- as it stands, I- I'm okay with not being a longitudinal provider of MS care.
0: Yeah. Anything that you miss?
1: I miss um, dementia and some of the behavioral neurology. Yeah. And of course we see some of that in the hospital, but it's all often combined with delirium and and acute medical issues. Um, But the longitudinal care of the dementia patient, and that's changed too. I don't know. I I think it's, it's a very behavioral neurology to me is, is rich in neurology. Mm -hmm. If That makes sense. Whereas to me, stroke is rich in neurology because it's acutely seeing the nervous system, you know, in its vulnerable state and yeah. in its dysfunction. And as been said by a stroke neurologists, you know, that decades precede us, I think Dr. Miller Fisher, for instance, said you learn stroke you, you learn neurology one stroke at a time. Um, and it's true, when when patients come in with stroke, you really learn neuroanatomy and right. Uh, uh, neuro pathology there and so it's it's wonderful but to me behavioral neurology and dementia I miss um, even though it's it's obviously less exciting in a lot of ways it really you could really see the nervous system in its dysfunction yeah
0: and it gets to some of the even just the the sort of existential yep. you know interest in neurology like who is the person right where is that located right
1: <laughs> very true yeah and, yeah and, and how did do, how does the family I've always liked that too, how does the family respond or how they manage hearing about neurologic dysfunction and dis- neurologic disorders and neurologic prognosis. So e- even early on here, we used to do a lot more palliative care, and uh, uh, whether it was for the cardiac patients post-arrest, we, we don't do much of that anymore. Now, of course, we do that for our own patients, and, and so we still do, do our palliative care in that way. But we used to do a lot more palliative care leading family discussions and helping with prognostication and decision-making in, in, in a lot of these, those other patients that now the palliative care service really takes. I was going to say, did we it. not
0: have, we didn't have a, a robust palliative care we maybe, it, then, but or... it wasn't robust.
1: Yeah. I think Reed and I starting out, it was just part of what we thought was what we offered yeah. as well. And um, I, mean, I stand by that. I think, I think we always did it very well. And I think our group in general doesn't mind talking with the families and guiding them through that. I, yeah. I, I think it is a part of how we all strongly feel about the service we provide. And
0: we're asked to prognosticate frequently. You know, we are. And so it comes kind of naturally then to mm-hmm. lead into well, what would it look like?
1: You
0: know? right. Okay, what about um, your best pre Sunshine Act pharma <laughs> gift or experience or trip? Oh.
1: I don't remember any trips, but I remember as a resident, um, they would have um, talks at restaurants and, um, you know, as a resident, you don't have any money and um, so, and you could bring your spouse. And so I remember some really good meals in Seattle that Lynn and I would get to go to. Yeah. And um, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. And then what about, I was going to say, oh, how about everybody had a, had reviews of themselves online. You ever look yourself up?
1: I have, but you know, it's funny. (laughs) There really aren't any reviews of me because you've been inpatient. I've been inpatient yeah. for so long, and and I guess patients and their families don't think to review doctors who are in the hospital, which in some ways I think is too bad because it looks like I don't either see patients <laughs> or you know yeah. if somebody else tried to look it up, they'd be like, well, who, who's this guy?
0: You well, know? it's probably good because the main time people want to you know do anything is when they're unhappy. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. It's kind of, it can be very demoralizing.
1: I bet, I bet. I'm perfectly good with minimizing my uh, web footprint. Yeah.
0: What do you do when you're alone in the elevator?
1: Gosh, uh, let's see, I I take my mask off, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, what else? Uh, Oh, I like to stretch. Sometimes I I, (laughs) get into some weird, uh, you know, wide stance like a giraffe and just, do some toe touches or some, you know, some deep bends or some squats and, or, you know, and then of course the, the door starts to open. And then I just stand there like nothing's going on. right? I,
0: I think that <laughs> that is more common than, you know, it's gotta be. Yeah. All right. And then, okay. Sensory exam, love it. Or would you rather stand in line for a day at the DMV? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would rather do the sensory exam because the DMV is like, I'm okay with the sensory exam because my sensory exam, is a neurohospitalist sensory exam. Well, it's pretty, yeah. you know, for for all you neurologists out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's it's a it's a marginal exam. You know, occasionally I gotta bust out the broken Q-tip to to get a little bit more, you know, fine with my exam or or um, do some two-point discrimination type stuff. But mostly it's light touch and or pain, which yeah. is not that hard to do. Yeah, and, yeah. And as I was always taught, and as I try to teach other residents, if you're spending an inordinate amount of time on the sensory exam, you're kind of missing the bigger picture of their encephalopathy and dementia or whatever. And you just need to kind of move on.
0: Yeah. It's so, it's so hard. The sensory exam still for me, I just hate it. Which do you like better subarachnoid hemorrhage, vasospasm, or subdural hemorrhage seizures?
1: That's really tough. (laughs) Now I'm going to say subdural, uh, with seizures because Um, I've coined this term that I don't know that I can get it to to catch on, but I've been trying to get it to catch on for a number of years. And that's called subdural corticopathy. I use it. These patients, thank you for for using it. um, But these patients, they have cortical dysfunction that's not well described in the literature. And I've looked this up. There's no reference to corticopathy but they literally have a corticopathy from the pressure on the, the, you know, from the subdural on the cortex. And and then they have regional dysfunction from that, whether it's paresis or sensory loss or aphasia or otherwise. And um, is it, is it a seizure phenomenon? Will you EEG them and they may not be having seizures? You MRI them and there's not necessarily a DWI infarction that you see and and then over time they get better, and so I would rather corticopathy. See that. corticopathy. I like it.
0: All right, all right. Brachial plexopathy or Parkinson's med adjustment?
1: I'll adjust Parkinson's meds all day before <laughs> I have to like think about the brachial plexus.
0: <laughs> When's the last time you
1: drew it? <laughs> oh, I don't think I can. <laughs> Years, decades, uh, last century, probably. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I hear you. Okay. I
1: have fond recollections of our old cafeteria for a couple of reasons. It was old school. There was a salad bar. You served yourself, but our team would always meet. Even, even in the early days, we would always meet for lunch. Back then, of course, it was the cafeteria because there wasn't a lounge and yeah. we didn't have a, 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 an office suite for us to sit down at a conference table. And, um, but we would, we would always take the time out of the day to have, even if it was just 15 or 20 minutes, to, to sit lunch. down and have lunch. And uh, um, I, you know, we're not as good as, as we used to be about doing that, but I, if you just have like 15 or 20 minutes to sit down and decompress with your coworkers, it's actually very recharging, it, it draws you together, it allows you to talk about cases if that, if that needs to be done. But a lot of times, none of us even wanna talk about cases. We'd rather talk about, yeah. hey, what's going on in your life and I think that's part of what we talked about earlier too—that esprit de corps, that sort of yeah, feeling sure. of "Hey, we're 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 here for, you know, for the for the long haul. We're not we're not just here to, to check in and check out, yeah, and, and such." It had a totally different feel to it than it does today, um, because you don't see as much of that today.
0: And somehow we don't even often have time to eat.
1: doesn't Do You seem even like
0: eat? It? I mean, we'll eat on the run, but like I don't always even eat. I just uh, eat a cereal bar or something right.
1: like that. Yeah, I, I feel like we're eating on the run more, and um, I, I really do try to take a solid ten or fifteen minutes some at some point in the day to just sit down, though. Yeah. Whether it's with the team or just even by myself to to die to eat a little bit to digest or to you know drink a cup of coffee yeah. and just breathe a little bit. Um, I, yeah. I just think it 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 helps.
0: Okay. Do you know of other groups comparable to ours in private? I mean in um, community probably, hospitals
1: probably there are neuro hospitals. there's a lot more of them out there yeah. and um, I'm, a, I'm a little removed from it because I've been here so long now and I've not job hunted so right. to speak um, I, I do remember um, one of our third partners that we recruited here some years ago um, as we were growing um, had come from an academic uh, a somewhat academic environment where he had residents working with him and um, and when, when you come here, though, you don't have that. You don't have the residents working for you. You're doing all of the work. And so it's like you're an intern, a resident, a fellow, and an attending all wrapped in one. Yeah. And um, it was very hard. I think it was a hard adjustment for him when he came here. And he was here for, for uh, about 18 months, and he was a really good doctor, and I miss working with him. But I, I think um, it, we, it, it's a hard job being a yeah. neurohospitalist some of it depends on how you have it set up. And, um, I I have to say that we've created a a bit of a beast in some ways. I don't regret any of what we've created in that regard. I think it's been, been the right right thing to do. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's been a, um, it, it, it's just it's it's tough, you know. Yeah. It, it it the work wears you out. It's hard work. Yeah. Um, you know, we occasionally you get you get a, an easier day, and my goodness, does that feel good to get get an easy day? But, but it also feels doing, good
0: to work hard, doesn't it? It does. And yeah. I, I actually
1: tell when we recruit, and I think about this for myself. One of the things that I love about this work, Jennifer, is that, um, I, you know I get here, I get to work, and before I know it, the day is over. there is no time to sit and watch the clock and it feels meaningful it feels meaningful and before you know it there there really aren't enough hours in the day to do the work Mm -hmm. and so it's a constant scramble and it's frenetic that way and stressful that way but you never feel like you're dragging through the day and To me it just makes the day go by so fast. Yeah. Which before I know it, it's time to go home. I haven't had time to like, you know, think about woe is me or anything like that. And yeah. uh, So it's really
0: that's well said, I agree. If anything, the stress is just, oh, I don't have enough time to think about this case as much as I feel like I need to, or something. But yeah, it's not it's not boring. Never boring.
1: Never boring. But one of the things I think our group has really done well to do is since we typically have two doctors and two advanced practice providers here, it could be that I'm having that day where I need to think more about a case. And so I can be working just crazy hard through the day, but only see eight or 10 patients. And my partner knows that I know he's working. And so he picks up the slack or she picks up the slack and you know see, sees you know a lot more patients. And then the next day it might be flipped where you know, I've got my cases settled, they, they all have good plans, I've communicated well with the families, you know, now I'm going to be more efficient and be able to get through the day while my partner has to really spend some time at the bedside. Or yeah, that's one places. of the
0: nice things in neuro hospitals is there's not a schedule, they're not waiting for their appointment time, you can right. get there when you get there. Right. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems fortuitous for the region that Dr. Snyder arrived when he did. Together, he and Dr. Taylor developed the NeuroHospitalist program that is now the inpatient arm of Mission Neuro. The two of them intentionally adopted the wise strategy of embracing opportunity as it arose and of making themselves too useful to fail. I found it interesting that Dr. Snyder acknowledged that, in retrospect, the effort that he poured into developing this program was a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. It makes me think of how, with raising children, as they grow up, you wonder how you did it when they were babies. Certainly, Drs. Taylor and Snyder are like the parents of Mission's Comprehensive Stroke Center. Well, that's all the time we have today, but thanks for joining me as we explore topics around the unique perspective of neurohospital's work.